0: Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is
1: here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app.
0: The early 1990s were an awesome time for new music. If you lived through it, you'll know what I mean. The big thing, of course, was grunge. But there was also a resurgence in punk rock. We got Britpop. There was a spike in the production of industrial music, along with a fresh approach to goth. Then there were bands who were so unique that the best anyone could do was classify them as alternative, a nebulous umbrella term that confused everyone. Alternative came to mean different. It was a basket in which to put bands that defied description. There was Tool, there were the Red Hot Chili Peppers, there were the Beastie Boys, and Rage Against the Machine. Now, I remember seeing them play the 1993 Lollapalooza Festival. They were one of the first bands on the main stage. They just walked on and they immediately kicked into Killing In The Name Of, and the crowd just lost its collective mind. This was a new, young, angry band at the peak of, well, everything. Their debut album was so good, and the reaction to what they played and said and performed was so positive that it seemed that they were just destined to be the biggest band in the world. It was just a matter of time. But, of course, it didn't work out that way. And here's why. This is the Rise and Fall and Rise of Rage, Part 2. This is the ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Rage Against the Machine and Bulls on Parade, a single from their second album, Evil Empire, which came out on April 16th, 1996. Almost four full years after they shocked everyone with their debut record. Hi again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of our look at the career of Rage. Now, four years is a very long time to go between your debut album and your second record, especially if that first record is seen as something of a game changer in music. Usually you want that second CD out within 18 months, just so you can maintain momentum and feed the needs of all your new fans. So why did Rage take so long between that first and second record? Well, a couple of reasons. First, they toured and toured and toured. Second, they got sidetracked on some non-album projects like recording songs for movie soundtracks. And third, internal politics. See, here's a problem with a highly political, super socially conscious band like Rage. You're more than just a band. You're a political unit using the system to drive political, social, and economic change. Your goals are admirable. Your standards are ultra high. And your chances of failure are strong. Once you realize that it's going to be a lot tougher to change the world than you first thought, internal dissension takes root. Hey, that didn't work, so let's do it this way. No, 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 we haven't given enough time. Let's stick with the plan. But there is no time. We got to do something. And so on and so on and so on. There was disillusionment. Rage always tried to cultivate strong relationships with their fans. For example, it wasn't uncommon to find Zack Roca in the parking lot of the venue after the show holding a political discussion with 15 kids. It's pretty cool, huh? Uh, But Zach saw this as a glass half empty. Fifteen kids? We just played in front of a crowd of 5,000. Why weren't they all sticking around to get political? Were the messages not getting through? Or do our fans just want to pretend that they're into what we're trying to preach? Here's a quote from Tom Morello in an interview with Alternative Press magazine. A good song should make you want to tap your toes and get with your girl. A great song should destroy cops and set fire to the suburbs. I'm only interested in writing great songs. Complicating matters was the fact that they were a left-wing collective working for a multinational major record label. How do you reconcile the inherent contradictions in that arrangement? As a band with a record contract, you're expected to do certain things, like tour, like doing promo, like sitting down for interviews, like doing MTV appearances, like releasing singles where all the F-bombs had to be edited out, otherwise radio stations and video channels couldn't play them. Keeping everyone in the band moving in the same direction and staying in the same headspace was hard. So much of the time between the first two Rage albums was spent refuting rumors that the band was actually going to break up. Now, there was an attempt to record a second album in Atlanta in late 1994. The band moved into a house, started to jam, and began to record. They wrote 20 songs over the four or five months that they stayed in Atlanta, but tensions and creative differences got so crazy that everything was aborted. They even fired their manager during this time, ostensibly because he wasn't buying into the revolution. So it boiled down to this. Whose vision for Rage was the right one? In the end, Rage gave up, moved back to California, separated to cool off, and then eventually got back to work new songs were fleshed out in Hollywood and then recorded in of all places Melbourne Australia and finally it was done evil empire came out in april 1996 and debuted at number 1 on the album charts sold in the millions and songs were even nominated for grammy awards like this one One of the singles from Evil Empire, it's Rage and People of the Sun. Now that song exemplifies some of what was causing the difficulties within the band. This track is about the Zapatista Revolution, which was going on at the time in the Mexican state of Chiapas, one of the poorest in the country. The Zapatistas, led by a guy known as Subcomandante Marcos, were libertarian Marxists, which is about as far to the left of the political spectrum as you can go. And in 1994, they declared war on the Mexican government. Part of their strategy became to reach out to like minded groups using the internet, including left wing bands like Rage Against the Machine, who of course accepted. While certain elements of the media portrayed the Zapatistas as terrorists, there was Rage Against the Machine meeting with Subcomandante Marcos in the Mayan jungle. At the same time, Rage was calling out American politicians and military people as war criminals. It's very bold, very confrontational stuff. But when you take an extreme stance, There's bound to be a backlash. Rage decided to tour with Wu-Tang Clan, a very political hip-hop outfit. This combination scared certain law enforcement authorities along the itinerary, which created more difficulties. Some police departments wanted to block gigs for fear of civil insurrection and violence and riots. And it wasn't long before Rage and the Wu-Tang guys realized that their politics weren't exactly entirely aligned. There was even rumors of a backstage fight then there was the Saturday Night Live incident. Rage played on international TV with an American flag hung upside down in the background, which is considered to be a huge sign of disrespect. They were protesting the guest host, Steve Forbes, a billionaire Republican candidate for president. Rage didn't get a chance to play a second song that night because it was rumored that Zach was going to call out General Electric, the parent company of NBC, as manufacturers of weapons and perpetrators of war crimes in the first Gulf War. After that first song, they were quickly escorted from the building. Rage immediately complained of being censored by GE and NBC. It got pretty weird. Rage with Tire Me from the Evil Empire album. Despite the controversies and the internal struggles, the band carried on. They played benefits, they played political rallies, and lent their support to a variety of causes. This included the case of Mumaya Abu Jamal, a journalist who was on death row for killing a cop in Philadelphia in 1982, and it included the first Tibetan Freedom Festival, which was organized by the Beastie Boys. All the while, they tried to reconcile their position as major label rock stars by portraying themselves as soldiers on a cultural battlefield, revolutionaries who were trying to build a bridge between music and the movement, whatever that was at the time. Eventually though, it was time to record a new album. The third Rage Against the Machine album was called The Battle of Los Angeles. It came out on November 2nd, 1999, which was one day short of the seventh anniversary of their first record. And like the last album, it debuted at number one on the album charts, which was kind of sweet because it stopped Mariah Carey's album from reaching the top spot. Let's hear something from that record and pay close attention to Tom Morello's guitar. By this time he had developed a very unique playing style. He used lots of effects to get lots of different sounds. But when you listen to Tom's playing, the thing that really gets me is the space between the notes. His riffs breathe. The short gaps of nothing between the notes often say more than riffs that don't have gaps. The net effect is very, very powerful. Rage from their third album, The Battle of Los Angeles, that's Testify. The video was directed by professional muckraker Michael Moore. There were tours, both as headliners and as openers for bands like U2. There were songs in video games and songs on soundtracks for movies like Godzilla and The Matrix. Things seemed to have calmed down, but in truth, the old tensions were still there. A fourth album was called for, but they never really got around to writing any new songs. The result was a collection of covers called Renegades. It featured a cover of a Bruce Springsteen song that became one of Tom Morello's all time favorites. Rage had been playing the Ghost of Tom Joad for years. It was included on a collection of videos in 1997, and it showed up on Renegades. No child. Rage covering Springsteen with the ghost of Tom Joad. In the summer of 2000, Rage announced that they were gonna do a 30-date tour with the Beastie Boys called the Rhyme and Reason Tour. There would be activist messages and a promise that a dollar from every ticket would go to charity. But then Mike D drove his mountain bike into a pothole and dislocated his shoulder. Turned out to be so bad that the whole tour had to be canceled. In the end, Rage went it alone, recording a live album at the Olympic Grand Auditorium in Los Angeles. The date was September 13th, 2000, And this turned out to be the last ever show Rage would ever do for a long, long time. Lights out, come Rage, live in L.A., September 13th, 2000. Great gig, but a month later it all fell apart. On October 18th, 2000, Zach D. la Roca released a statement. I feel that it is now necessary to leave Rage because our decision-making process has completely failed. It is no longer meeting the aspirations of all four of us collectively as a band and, from my perspective, has undermined our artistic and political ideal. In other words, the competing philosophies and ideologies had taken their toll. Rage was done. For now. I once had a long conversation with Don Letts, a British DJ and filmmaker who was deep into the original punk scene. He was especially close with The Clash. And he has a theory. He believes the average and proper lifespan of most bands is seven years, nine at the outside. He said that was enough time for them to be born, to rise, to peak, and then explode, usually due to some kind of internal pressures, things like creative differences and diverging lifestyles. Now, I got to thinking about Don when I started putting together one of these shows on Rage Against the Machine. They formed in 1991, got big real fast, and right on schedule, they broke up in 2000, torn apart by a series of internal conflicts. Now, given the uncompromising nature of their politics, goals, and individual social agendas, it was actually amazing that they lasted as long as they did. So what happened next? Well, Tom Morello, Brad Vilk, and Timmy C tried to carry on with a new singer. They auditioned several people, including b Real of Cypress Hill. But should they have another rapper-type dude? Or should they try something else? Producer Rick Rubin, who was a friend, connected them with Chris Cornell. Now, Chris hadn't been doing very much since the dissolution of Soundgarden, so why not see if there was any chemistry
1: there? Here's Timmy C. We had a rehearsal set up, and... At that time, leading into that, we Zach had left the band, and we were kind of figuring out what we were going to do, and we were still tossing around maybe finding someone to sing for Rage Against the Machine. And so when Rick came at us and said, "Why don't you jam with Chris Cornell?" and then a rehearsal got scheduled to where we were going to go meet Chris Cornell. It was more than just for me at that time. It was more than just we get to we get to be we're going to jam with Chris Cornell. You know that was that in itself made my hair stand up. But then it was like. And Rick Rubin wants to produce it. And we don't even have any songs done, you know? And so that all that together at that moment made me breathe a sigh of relief, you know? And I was like, wow, there is, there's a future here that's pretty bright. Now here's Tom Morello. The first time we got together, we just jammed together. And we decided, well, let's just try writing some songs. And uh, I think the first three days of rehearsal with Chris, we wrote. Uh, Exploder, light my way, and bring them back alive. And at that point, we went, mm, "This is good." <laughs> it was shortly thereafter that we decided that we were going to be a band. I mean, it was when we first talked with Chris. Uh, it was important for us to, to for there to be understanding that this we didn't want to do a project. We didn't want to do a one off. We didn't want to do, you know, a, a, a quick. Cash in album between you know superstars of the '90s. <laughs> um, we wanted to be a band, and more than that, we wanted the next thing that we did to be the best thing that we'd done. And that's where we were kind of setting the bar. Chris seemed very into that, and we were so inspired by working with him as a vocalist and and the vibe of musical camaraderie that went on. We wrote about 21 songs in 19 days, and it was. Um, most fertile creative period in our careers and it was awesome and now here's Chris I showed up at at a rehearsal
0: um, and the idea was that we would just jam just have fun play some music uh, see what happened Um, I had a pretty cavalier attitude towards it. I got there and figured I'm gonna know within 10 minutes and within 10 minutes I knew that it would be great but I stuck in there for maybe an hour and a half <laughs> and then they were ready to just keep going and keep going and I stopped and said I had a great time and uh, I think we can be a band. And I, th- I think that was a little fast for everybody but within a couple of days I think we had seven songs anyway and the songs, if you have seven songs and you're writing more then you kind of are a band whether you know it or not. I have a bootleg CD at home called Rage Against the Machine with Chris Cornell. The first track is called Take It Out on Me, but by the time the album was released, it was called Cochise. Audio slave lasted three albums. Meanwhile, though, Tom Morello needed more. He began performing low-key open mic nights, Billy Bragg style. Just him, a guitar, and an amp under the name The Night Watchman. Meanwhile, Zach tried to get something going on his own. He worked with DJ Shadow with the hopes of making a solo album, but that didn't work. Then he hooked up with Trent Reznor, but those sessions were a disaster too. As Trent told me to my face, and this is a quote, those tapes will never see the light of day. A few of Zack's songs were released, but there was never an album. As the years passed, pressure began to build for Rage to reunite, especially after the end of Audio Slave. Bags and bags and bags of money were piled on the table, but Rage refused to bite. The rumor was there was just so much animosity between Zack and the rest of the band that a reunion would never happen. Truthfully though, everyone had kept in touch. Timmy and Zack often went surfing together, Tom and Zach continued on some activist work together. But then, just after Christmas 2006, rumors began to take hold that Rage would reunite for the Coachella Music Festival in California in April of 2007. And against what everybody thought would happen, it did happen. So what broke down those old barriers? Well, according to Tom Morello, it was George Bush... The time had simply come for a band like Rage to stand up and oppose what was going on with the U.S. domestically and internationally. Since then, there have been tours, rabble-rousing at various political conventions and basically stirring the pot. However, there were never any indications that there would be a new album. Now, Tom is happy between his work as The Night Watchman and a more recent project called Street Sweeper. He makes guest appearances on his Friends records, The Prodigy, The Dave Matthews Band, Anti-Flag, Pucifer, that's the Tool side Project, He's also done a little acting. If you watch the movie Iron Man, he's the first terrorist to be killed when Tony Stark breaks out of the cave prison. As for Zach, well, he's got his project One Day as a Lion. There's no album, but at least we got an EP. And you know something? It did okay. Zach De la Roca with his post-rage band One Day as a Lion. So Rage Against the Machine is back together, but only to play gigs and to stir the pot wherever they think there is injustice and violations of human rights. There is absolutely no indication that they will ever record any new material together. But somehow, I I, I wouldn't bet on it. If circumstances are right and they feel they need to get together to deliver a new message, I can see them doing it. But, you know, maybe they shouldn't. This is a band with just three proper studio albums of original material. This stuff is so good and so influential and so revolutionary, but it came from a time when everyone in the group was at a specific place in their lives. The world was in a specific state. Everything meshed, everything worked, and the results were legendary. Same with The Clash. They were brilliant for their time, but despite multi-million dollar offers, they never got back together to record same with the Smiths, same with the Stone Roses. If they all did try to get back together and make the same kind of music they did when they were young, angry men, what would the results be? Frankly, I'm just happy that Rage is playing gigs again. If they never make another record, I'm good. They had something to say, and they said it well. Don't confuse it. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross.